Uh, good morning once again, church. Uh, we are uh, so glad that you are here and uh, so thankful for the opportunity to worship God uh, through the opening of His Word. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to grab the one that is in that rack right in front of you, uh, if you grab that and turn to page 902, that is where you will find our passage, John 15, 12 through 17 this morning. And, and while you're turning there, if you're a guest with us especially, we just want you to know right from the start, uh, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God himself, inerrant in the original manuscripts and then sovereignly preserved for us through the generations so that through the reading of this book and the illumination of his spirit, we believe that we can know God. We can love him, we can follow him, we can worship him, and we believe so much in the sufficiency of scripture that we don't think, I'm a, that, we don't think that what I'm about to say today matters at all unless it agrees with what God has said in his word. So we want to collectively be a church that believes it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says. So what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And, and just so you know, if you come to that conclusion that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, that has significant ramifications for the rest of your life. And so I don't just want you to take my word for it, but I want you to know where we stand. And this is why we want you to see God's word for yourself today in John 15. I have nothing to say to you unless it comes from the truth of God's word. And over the next couple months, we're going to be walking through the words of Jesus in John 15 through 17. Uh, John has documented for us what Jesus said to his disciples after what we know as the Last Supper, that last Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, and, but before Jesus arrived in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would be arrested and then later crucified. And so John 15 through 17 happened in between those two events, the Last Supper and Jesus' arrival in the garden. And so these passages contain Jesus' last lessons for his disciples. In chapter 17, we're going to see Jesus' prayer for them and, and for us as well. And so we're seeing Jesus' heart for his followers in these chapters. And, and our desire for this series is that our hearts would align with Jesus' heart for us. That our hearts would align with Jesus' heart for us. Because I don't know about you, but when, when I think about this year, 2024, I want to want what Jesus wants. I want to want what Jesus wants. Because I believe that what he wants for me and what, and what he wants for all of us is better than what we might desire on our own. And so last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15, uh, we, we saw Jesus' heart for the Father to receive glory and for us to receive joy. That's primarily verses 8 through 11. For the Father to receive glory and for us to receive joy. And I hope you, you hear me on this. God's glory and our joy are not disconnected. You don't have to choose between living a life that glorifies God and living a life that finds true happiness. Okay, God's glory and our joy are connected to each other because God is glorified when we bear fruit that demonstrates we're connected to Jesus. Because 
Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. This is the metaphor that sort of informs the rest of John chapter 15. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from Jesus, we we can't really do anything of lasting value. Jesus is the source. He's the source of everything that we need, including true, lasting joy. And so we don't want to turn to counterfeit sources seeking what can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. So you can have all of this world and you still won't find what I have found in Jesus. Or you can have everything else. You can look all these other places and I'm telling you, you will not find what I have found in Christ. He is the source of everything that I need. And when Jesus is your source of joy, you will naturally bear fruit that brings God the Father glory. God's glory, our joy, are connected to each other. And and, and it's important for us uh, to understand that as Jesus shares his heart for his disciples, he's not like following an outline where he goes, okay, point one, point two, point three, point four, uh, which is probably why we will see some repetitive themes throughout this. He's sharing his heart with them, these last lessons for them before he goes to the cross. And we see some themes repeated in these passages, which is good news for me. It's good news for me because that means that when I don't have enough time to elaborate on something, I, will, I know that we'll be able to get back to it. And so uh, we're going to do that today with a theme that was in our passage last week, and it comes back again this week. And if you're like, why didn't he talk about verse 7 at all last week? It's because I knew I was going to talk about it this week, and I'm excited to do so. Uh, so just so we remember our context before we jump into our passage, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. God the Father is glorified when we have a lasting connection with the love of Jesus that causes us to joyfully bear fruit with our lives. That's the first 11 verses of chapter 15, and that's where we pick it up in verses 12 through 17 of John 15. God's word says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Those are some loaded verses, ladies and gentlemen. There's there's a lot that we can go into. There's a lot I can't get to. Send me an email if there's something that you want to think more about later. Uh, But this section of verses begins and ends with the command for the disciples to love one another. So you see it here in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And then back in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So you see those bookends? Verses 12 and 17, it's the same thing. I'm commanding you to love one another. Now, one question that you should ask yourself uh, when when you see this verse is, who is the source of authoritative commands in the Bible? Like, who has the right to give commandments in God's word? Only God does, right? God is the one who gives commandments. 
So, so even in the way that Jesus is speaking in this passage, I would argue he is claiming divine authority. Right? He's claiming divine authority by saying, this is my commandment. He's giving them a commandment. And I would say, rightly so. Rightly so. We believe that Jesus is God in human form because that's how he is revealed in Scripture. And if anyone ever tries to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God while he was on this earth, you can just tell them that they need to look at his words more closely. (laughs) Because once you start to look for it, you see it everywhere. You can decide that you don't believe Jesus' words, but you can't argue that Jesus did not claim to be God because he does it over and over again. And you start to see it everywhere, even in verses like this, which is a claim to divine authority. This is my commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? How are we supposed to love one another? What what is that supposed to look like? As Jesus has loved us. So if we want to know how to love one another, we have to know how Jesus loves us. Right? That makes sense? We want to know how to love one another. We need to know how Jesus loves us. And the good news for us is that sandwiched in between the command to love one another in verses 12 and 17, verses 13 through 16 teach us about the love of Jesus. Teach us about the love of Jesus. So as we see the love that Jesus has for us, we will also be seeing the love that we should have for one another. And so that's just my goal this morning, that seeing the love of Jesus would inform the love that we are called to have for each other. Let's look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the first thing that we see here is that the love of Jesus lays down his life. And that really escalates in a hurry, doesn't it? Like, like Jesus, you couldn't work your way up to that one? Nope. He just starts, he starts right there. Greater love has no one than this. Then one lay down his life for his friends, right? You, couldn't you start, Jesus, with shoveling snow for your neighbor or, or with loaning someone a tool? Nope, he doesn't have time for that because he's about to do this. He's about to do this. He, he points the disciples right to the ultimate demonstration of love. How, how does Jesus love us? Self-sacrificially. He lays down his life for his friends. And the disciples are about to find out that this is not a figure of speech. Right? This, is, this is not a, a hypothetical that Jesus is talking about. This is real life, and it's right now. Jesus had just told Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. Right? As Jesus is speaking these words, he knows that Judas is on his way to committing the ultimate act of betrayal. Judas is turning Jesus over to the religious authorities who want him dead in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. Which, by the way, he's worth a lot more than that, Judas. Right? Like, he's worth a lot more than that. Jesus, you sold him for 30 pieces of silver? And I know it's a little late to point that out, but I still felt inclined to do so. Jesus is on his way right now to the Garden 
of Gethsemane, where he will soon be wrongly arrested by Roman soldiers and then illegally tried, just a complete sham of a trial, an angry mob making a mockery of justice. Jesus will be condemned to death by means of crucifixion, beaten, mocked, scorned, and the only, the only completely innocent, righteous man to ever live, God in human form, would be declared guilty by the people he had created. He's the source of everything, right? He would, he, he supplying the breath in people's lungs so they can shout crucify him. The author of all of life is going to be sentenced to a criminal's death. And as shocking as that is, and that should shock us, that Jesus, God himself, would be condemned to death by human beings that had no right to declare him guilty, right? It is even more shocking that this was all part of God's plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world. How could that be the plan? (laughs) Like, how could this be plan A? The death of Jesus was not an accident, and it was not a miscalculation on his part. He's been previewing this to the disciples. He's been telling them, this is what is going to happen. I mean, look at the claim that Jesus had already made. This is John 10, 18. I'll have it on the screen. John 10, 18, speaking about his life, Jesus says this, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' earthly life wasn't taken away from him. He chose to lay it down in submission to the will of the Father. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down Someone making that choice laid down his life for his friends. That was not a figure of speech. So so did Jesus demonstrate his love when he fed crowds of hungry people? Yes. Did he demonstrate his love when he healed the sick? Yes. Did he demonstrate his love when he welcomed the interruption of children? Yes. But there is no greater act of love that anyone can conceptualize in their minds that exceeds the love that Jesus demonstrated when he chose to die so somebody else can live. That's how Jesus loves his friends. That's why Jesus was choosing to go to the cross. Because there was no other way for us to be made right with a holy God than for a perfect sacrifice to act as our substitute. Jesus receiving what we deserve so we could receive what we don't deserve. Forgiveness and grace and adoption. He couldn't demonstrate his love for his friends in any greater way. And while verse 13 is ambiguous, right? Jesus is saying, greater love has no one than this than someone. Then someone lay down his life for his friends. It's ambiguous. Verse 14 is personal. You are my friends. You are my friends. If you do, would I command you? No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus loves us with a love that calls us friends. The love of Jesus lays down his life, and the love of Jesus calls us friends. This is the gospel. We can be friends of God. 
Do you realize that? You can be friends with God. Like, that's crazy, people. That, that's wild. That's wild. That's, that's not a concept that we see in the Old Testament, right? Israel was called God's chosen people. They were called children of God. And, and that is what God the Father calls all of those who place their faith in Jesus. So no matter your past, no matter your heritage, no matter your social status, no matter your guilt, shame, regret, when you place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. So we are, spiritually speaking, sons and daughters of God the Father. If you ever hear a Christian refer to another Christian as their brother or their sister, you're like, that's weird. No, it's the gospel, okay? Just so you know, it's not because they're weird. It's because we're part of a family. We're part of the family of God. We've been adopted spiritually into his family. And, and, and that is where I want, that is where I want as your pastor for your ultimate identity to be found. So if someone asks you, who are you? Like, like, who do you think you are? I want you to be able to confidently say, I am a child of God. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm a child of the King, right? I am a child of God. That is where my identity is found. And if we connect that truth with what Jesus is saying here, we could say that because of the gospel, we can be children of God the Father and friends with God the Son. Okay, so we are children of God the Father, friends of God the Son. No longer do I call you servants, but friends. So our identity is not just found in being God's servants. And by the way, the Greek word doulos that's, that's used here could just as easily be translated slaves. No longer do I call you slaves, but friends. No longer do I call you servants, but friends. We are not just God's servants, though that would be a better identity than we deserve. Right? right? Just get me in the house. Just get me in the house. Right? Is to, to go from enemies of God to servants in God's house, that would be an act of grace. It would be more than I deserve because of my sin and rebellion against him. That, that, that's the thought process, by the way, that's presented in the parable of the prodigal son. Right? He's like, if I could just get my dad to allow me to be a servant. Right? If I could just get in the house. If I can just get in the house. But the love of Jesus exceeds our wildest expectations. He says, you are not just my servants. You are my friends. You are my friends. And, and, and what's the difference? What's the difference in Jesus' mind between a servant and a friend in verse 15? We don't have to wonder. He tells us. He says, a servant doesn't get an explanation. The master tells him to do something, he does it. Right? He says to do it, you do it, no questions asked. But what Jesus heard from the Father, he had made known to his disciples. That's why you're my friends and not servants. And this is a bigger deal than you might think. Jesus didn't just come to earth to reinforce the master's rules, right? So Jesus didn't come and say, hey, you bunch of sinners, right? Do this, do this, or else. Why? Because I said so. That's not what Jesus did, right? That, that's not what he does. No, no. Jesus came to reveal the heart and plan of God, his father, right? So, so think about last week. He, he's telling his disciples to abide in me, abide in me. And he gives them so many reasons why. 
It's not because I said so. It's not just do it or else. No, it's abide in me. Why? So we can, so we can bear fruit, so we can glorify God, so we can find true joy. Jesus tells us why, because that's what friends do. That's what friends do. Jesus had told his disciples why he was going to the cross, why he was returning to the Father in heaven, why it was better for him to go so the Holy Spirit would come. So, so do I have the answers to every question? Do I, do I know every, why every little thing happens? Of course not, right? There's all sorts of things that happen during this earthly life that throw me for a loop. But I know the ultimate plan of God. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? I know the ultimate plan of God because Jesus came to reveal and carry out God's plan of redemption for us. You know what else I know? I know the end of the story because I read the end of the book. Right? He, he's given us his word to reveal his plan, what he's doing, and even what's going to happen in the future. He tells us why. He tells us what the Father is doing. I have a friend in a high place who came down to reveal and carry out the master plan of God the Father. We're his friends. We're his friends. Now, real quick, we have to look back at verse 14 because there's a couple things that I don't want us to get confused on. You are my friends, if you do what I command you, first question, does that sound like something your friend would say to you? <laughs> and, it, and if your friend did say that to you, would you be friends with them for very long? <laughs> You're my friends if you do what I command you. Command? What, like, what are you talking about, right? You'd get a little, you'd be a little bit upset if your friend started to talk to you like that. Um, so, so we need to recognize first, that friendship with Jesus is a little unique, okay? So when we don't take this verse just to mean he's just our buddy-buddy friend, okay? Like somebody else that you just hang out with. No, 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 because he is also the one who has ultimate authority in heaven and on earth, okay? That's, that's, that's our friend. Uh, but, but maybe the more concerning part of this verse, especially if you, if you misunderstand it, is that it could leave you with the impression that our friendship with Jesus is something that we earn, Right? So, so is, is our friendship with Jesus dependent on our obedience to him? Right? Is, that, is that what he's saying? You are my friends if you do what I command you. What, what's the cause and effect here? Is it we keep his commandments and therefore we become his friends? Or is it we are his friends so we keep his commands? The latter is what I understand Jesus to be saying, because that's the message of the entire Bible. Our change in identity is what leads to a change in our behavior. Our change in identity is what changes, what is what leads to a change in our behavior. Being a Christian is first who we are, and then it is what we do. So what we do reveals who we actually are. And the context of the metaphor of Jesus being the vine and us being the branches is important here. First, we abide in him, and then we bear fruit, right? So you could, you could say, a branch abides in the vine if it bears fruit. Same, 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 same way of saying that. A branch abides in the vine if it bears fruit. That, that, because that's how we know. That's how we know. We are his friends, so we do what he says. 
If you try to transform your behavior without a transformation of your identity, it's never going to last. Because apart from Jesus, we can't do anything of lasting value. He first transforms our identity. It's who we are. We're connected to him. We abide in him. Therefore, we bear fruit. We keep his commandments. It's the evidence of what has already taken place in our lives. And you don't earn friendship with Jesus through obedience. And that understanding of verse 14, I believe, is further supported by what Jesus says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and what? Bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Lots to talk about in this verse. The first thing we see is that the love of Jesus chooses us. The love of Jesus chooses us. He says to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. God's love initiates. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. The Bible presents God as the ultimate cause. He is sovereign over all, including my salvation. I I, I didn't seek after him. Jesus came to seek and to save me, the one who was lost. He, He doesn't wait for us to get our act together and come to him, because if he did, we would never make it. He came to us. Ephesians 1, 4 says that we were chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And a lot of people get hung up with this question of whether we choose God or whether God chooses us. And there's certain questions within that that might be hard for our human minds to fully understand. But the Bible doesn't really seem to struggle with this question as much as we do. The Bible presents God as sovereign over all. The Bible says that God is the ultimate cause. And the Bible tells me that I'm responsible for my choices. And that might seem like a tension for us, but it doesn't seem like a tension to God. Because the Bible just says that's the way that it is. The Bible tells me the glorious truth that Jesus chose me. Why did he choose you, Tim? I have no idea. Not because of anything I brought to the table. It's not because, well, I did this for him. Or look at my resume. No, no, no. It had nothing to do with me at all. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It is a gift of God. I can't explain why God has been gracious to me except to explain that that's just who our God is. Right? You shouldn't be able to explain why God has been gracious to you except to explain, listen, that's who my God is. He is gracious and merciful and forgiving. I hope that you've experienced him in that way. This is how he loves us. He chooses us when we have nothing to offer. It's not conditional. It's not something that we can earn and can boast about. He loved us when we were his enemies. He makes us his friends. He gives us a new identity in him. I'm a adopted into the eternal family of God. My family, if you know, my wife and I, we've adopted three of our children. And when we made that choice, they didn't come to us with their resume for all that they were going to add to our family, right? We didn't put them through an interview process, right? To decide if we wanted them to have the name Pine, right? And God didn't put you through an interview process to decide whether he would welcome you into his family. He chose you, 
Just like my wife and I, we just chose our kids because we want to love them. We want to see them thrive. God chooses us, connects us to him, changes our identity so that we can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The transformation of our identity leads to the transformation in our behavior. I'm not adopted into God's family so I can go and do whatever I want. No, it's so I can go and bear fruit that shows who I'm connected to. And we have to talk about the second part of verse 16 as well. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Whoa. The love of Jesus and the transformation that he supplies leads to God answering our prayers. The love of Jesus answers our prayers. And this is not the first time in this conversation that Jesus had brought this up. We didn't have time to talk about it last week, but we're going to talk about it now. This is verse 7 of John 15. You can look back at it in your Bible or on the screen. Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Uh, My understanding of that verse is that there is a level of connection we can have with Jesus. If you abide in me, there's a level of connection we can have with Jesus to where his word becomes our wishes. There's a level of connection available where Jesus' words become what we wish for. If my words abide in you, whatever you wish, the Father will give it to you. And it's a similar vein to verse 16. Whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give it to you. So that's not a promise that's saying, if you say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayers that there are these magic words, right? So you ask for whatever you want, right? And then you slap in Jesus' name at the end. Ha, 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 you have to do it now. You promised, right? That's not how we're supposed to use Jesus' name. We talked about this in our study of the Ten Commandments. That's not how we use Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name because he's the only one through which we have access to a holy God, Right? We, we pray in Jesus' name because we are friends with him. We are friends with the Son who gives us access to the Father. He's our great high priest. We boldly approach the throne because we're not entering on our own accord. We come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And we also pray in Jesus' name by praying based on who Jesus has revealed himself to be. So we pray in Jesus' name based on what the word of God says. So the word of God tells us that he's our provider. So we pray for his provision. He is our wisdom. So we pray for his wisdom. He is our healer. So we pray for his healing. He is our savior. So we pray for his salvation. He is our protector. So we pray for his protection. He is exalted over all. So we pray for him to be glorified. If his words abide in us, whatever we wish, it will be done because it aligns with the will of the Father. We pray what's revealed to us in God's word in Jesus' name. And I think a lot of the time, the content of our prayers is more about our own names. And then we say, in Jesus' name, at the end. right? And a lot of times, maybe the content of my prayer should lead me to say, in Tim's name, amen. Because that's the name I'm most 
concerned about at the time. But when we abide in Jesus and his word abides in us, when we are filled with his truth, focused on his mission, when our lives are bearing fruit that reveals our transformation of identity, then we pray for God's word to be fulfilled, for his promises to be realized, for his kingdom to expand, for his glorification to be seen. And we pray in Jesus' name because we don't come to God on our own. We have access to the Father through our friend Jesus, and he loves to answer our prayers. He is a loving Father, after all. And, and, and there's so much more in these verses, but I need to remind us why. Why did Jesus touch on all these different aspects of his love for his disciples? Why, why did he talk about the love that lays down his life and calls us friends and chooses us and answers our prayers? Do you remember why he's telling us all of this? It's because he wants us to love one another as he has loved us. And in case you forgot verse 12, after all of this, he reminds you in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Because our love for others is enabled by Jesus' love for us. This is a more important truth than you might think. Our love for others is enabled by Jesus' love for us. Uh, let, let me give you an implication to help you see the significance of this. Based on this verse, I believe I can't love my kids the way that I should unless I'm connected to Jesus' love for me. Uh, maybe personalizing verse 12 will, will help you. This is Jesus' commandment, that I love DeAndre, Messiah, Bella, and Zayden as Jesus has loved me. I don't really know how I'm called to love them unless I know how Jesus loves me because his love is the initiator. And I just want you to hear the good news of this this morning. You were not created to be the ultimate source of love for someone else. You were not created to be the ultimate source of love for someone else. We fall into this trap in our relationships, I think, a lot, especially with our spouse or with our kids, right? We think we have to produce a self-sacrificial love for our family every day, right? It's all, it's all on you. And you get into seasons where people are just taking and taking your love without giving much back in return. And you just feel so drained every single day. And you don't know much longer that you can keep doing this. Or, or maybe you're trying to love your elderly parent and, and it's just so much all of the time. And I want God's word to just lift that burden from you today. The love that we need for others doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus. And his love is not in short supply. He loves us so much, right? Just look at the cross. Look at how much he loves us. Look at how much love he has for you. But he didn't intend for his love to just come to us. He intends for his love to flow through us as we are connected to him because he's the vine and we are the branches. And so if you're struggling to love your family or your friends, your church family right now, can I ask you this question? Are you experiencing Jesus's love for you? Are you experiencing Jesus's love for 
you? Are you connected to his love? Or are you just trying to manufacture this yourself? Jesus is the source. We are not. Abiding happens before fruit bearing. This command to love like Jesus loves makes no sense unless we are relying on the love that he alone can provide. So, so don't read this passage. See his love for you and think, I can, I can never do that. I can, I can never love like that, right? Uh, lay down my life? I mean, maybe for a couple people at the most, right? At the most, not very many. And this is the whole point. We can't love the way he loves on our own. We're not like him. So don't conclude, I could never love like that. Instead, I hope your heart and your mind says, I need to be connected to Jesus. I need to be connected to him. And so if you're here today and you have never experienced the love of Jesus for yourself, you've never placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to give you his righteousness as your own, to become part of his eternal family, I would love to invite you. I would love to invite you to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior and King today. I want you to experience his love for the very first time. He wants to transform your life from the inside out. And if you're a follower of Jesus, are you staying connected to Jesus' love? My wife needs the love of Jesus to flow through me. My, my kids need the love of Jesus to flow through through me. Our church needs the love of Jesus to flow through me. Our community needs the love of Jesus to flow through me. Our love for others is only enabled by Jesus' love for us. Abide in Jesus, because apart from him, we can do nothing. We certainly can't love each other the way that we should. Amen, church? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're just not left to wonder what your plan is but that you sent your son to reveal your heart, to reveal your plan of redemption, to tell us why. You've revealed how the story ends. We know that there will be ultimate victory. We know we have eternity to look forward to with you. And as I, I pray that as we see the love that you called us to, that we would not try to manufacture that love on our own, but instead, it would cause us to rely more on Jesus. I pray that we would experience your love this week, that we would abide in your love so that your love can flow through us to those around us so the world can know about Jesus. We confess that we try to do this on our own way too much, and we want to be more reliant on you than ever before. If there's someone here that's never experienced your love today, I pray that today would be the day that they place their faith in what you've done in their place so that they can be connected to you and their life can be transformed from the inside out. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.